All right, this morning we start John 11. We're going to be uh, using this as it leads up to the resurrection. Um, so kind of keep that in the back of your mind as we go through all of this. Uh, we'll be dealing with uh, the first 16 verses this morning. Hear the word of our God. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going to go there again? And Jesus answered, Are uh, are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night... He stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Let's pray. Father, your own word says that your people perish for a lack of knowledge. And so I ask that you would grant us greater knowledge this morning uh, of your word, through your word. Grant us knowledge of your love, your grace, and your mercy. Grant us knowledge of our care, sorry, of your care and concern for us. Enable us to trust you more fully and more consistently when dark times descend upon us. We ask this in the name of Jesus, the light of the world. Amen. <clears throat> in the line, well, actually not the Lion, the Witch, the Chronicles of Narnia, there's a big switch that happens from the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe to Prince Caspian. The children have been in their world, our world, for merely a year, but when they go back through the wardrobe, they don't realize until later that centuries have passed. They thought they would be going back to a world in which, again, Aslan is visible and all is right and well in the world. But when they get there, what they find is everything is overgrown. Everything has fallen apart. Everything is deserted. They're not sure exactly what has gone on, but this they know, Aslan is not there. 
As they explore, they find that centuries have passed, that the palace that was once theirs has fallen into disrepair. They find their rusty old weapons, and they discover that there is a war that's going on. And Prince Caspian needs their assistance. But Aslan, again, is nowhere in sight. Sometimes we experience things like that. Life doesn't turn out the way we thought it would. We experience things that seem completely contrary to our expectations. And we wonder, where is Jesus in the midst of all of this? We're very much like the children in that story. We wonder, where has our Savior gone? That's why I think is probably going through the minds of these two sisters as they wait for Jesus. The big idea this morning is that prayer brings God's best answer to our problem. And we want to start with, again, that idea of prayer, draw near to God in times of trouble. Let's set the stage. Remember, Jesus has just left Jerusalem, or has just previously left Jerusalem, under death threat. They had tried to stone him. So he takes his leave goes across the Jordan River, and that's where the story picks up as he does ministry across the Jordan, where he has actually found uh, much success as people have entrusted themselves into his care. And so while they are there east of the Jordan, Jesus gets a message. Lazarus is the problem, so to speak. Lazarus is Greek for Eliezer. That's a a name with rich Old Testament heritage. Eliezer was one of the sons of Aaron, and it was through his line that the high high priesthood would go. Uh, You might remember his son Phineas. Uh, Those of you who go to BSF, you probably read about Phineas the last couple of weeks. He's the son of Eliezer. Lazarus is Greek for Eliezer, and Eliezer means God has helped. And this Lazarus is really going to need the help of God. We find out right here that, because we haven't met Lazarus already in this gospel, we find out that he has two sisters, Mary and Martha, the older of which is most likely Martha, since it was her house. We see that in the episode in which uh, Jesus and the disciples are there, and and uh, Mary is attending to Jesus. She's listening as Jesus speaks, but Martha is all busy with all of the... uh, the details of hospitality, and uh, wants Mary to help her out. So that's not in this text, but that's just where we see them initially. Uh, John, in an interesting note here, mentions that Mary is the one who anointed Jesus with the ointment, and, he, and she is the one who dried him with uh, her hair, and that hasn't happened yet in John's Gospel. <laughs> that's chapter 12. So it's kind of one of those oddities that we find in the midst of Scripture that makes you go, What was John thinking? But what's important here is that the sisters send a message to Jesus. We're not sure exactly how they sent this message, but the message came that, Lord, he whom you love is ill. That's it. That's all. But let's note, Back in chapter 9, we talked a lot, we talked about uh, persistent and pervasive suffering through the man who was born blind. Okay? And that that was the idea that this man, having been born blind, went through decades of life with this suffering that would not go away. And we talked about how God uses that. Okay? 
This is a situation not of persistent and pervasive, but this is like you know, late onset sort of thing. This is suffering that life is going on, life seems great, and all of a sudden, it happens. Lazarus was suddenly struck ill. We're not sure what the illness was, but it was bad enough that they sent word to Jesus that the one that you love, and the word that is used there is phileo, it has that idea of of brotherliness, that brotherly love, that common bond that is there. Not the one that loves you, but they're emphasizing the one you, Jesus, love. Okay? They're using that word, there's sort of this idea that's communicated that they loved Jesus like he's family, and Jesus loved them like they were family. They do address him as Lord. There's sort of a recognition there that they have come under his leadership. They are his disciples. They're not just friends and family, but they recognize that there's something special about Jesus. And they they pay attention to his teaching, just as we saw in the, the earlier account where Mary is enraptured at the feet of Jesus, not with his eyes, but with his teaching, wanting to soak up the teaching of Jesus. And so they send this message, he whom you love is ill. It's about their brother. It's simply informational. No request is given. You would think that they would kind of tack something on the end here, come quickly, or something along those lines. Did they assume that that was all they needed to say for him to come and come quickly because he loved Lazarus? Did they assume perhaps that he would heal him from afar as Jesus did in chapter 4 of this very same gospel when the, the, uh, the religious leader came to him and asked for Jesus to come back and heal his, his daughter and Jesus merely spoke the words and the child was healed? Is that what they expected? Did they think that he wouldn't come at all because they knew exactly what happened in Jerusalem and that it was very dangerous for Jesus to come and maybe they're just merely supplying him with information so that he knows. There's a sense in which they are crying out. There's a sense in which they recognize, even in this plea, that Jesus cares and might do something. We're reminded in Scripture of Jesus' love and care for his people. And I just want to read a couple of things from a couple of different pieces of Paul's letter and Peter's letters to remind us of this. First Peter chapter 5, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, and that's the idea of affliction, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. And so we are to be like Mary and Martha in this particular instance, casting our anxieties, our fears upon Jesus, knowing that he cares for us or cares about us and will take care of us. We know we have access to Jesus and the Father in prayer precisely because of the work of Christ upon the cross, which is where Peter, uh, Paul goes in Ephesians chapter 2. For through him, for, meaning for through Christ, 
And the atonement that he has given that Paul talks about uh, earlier in chapter 2, for through him we both, meaning Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. And so the way to prayer has been opened up. Access to the Father has been opened up through the power of the Holy Spirit. We're able to, to go into the presence of the Heavenly Father because Christ has died upon the cross for sinners such as us. Okay, those, those sins and fears that we have that keep us from prayer, God, Jesus has dealt with those. We are welcome into the presence of the Father. We are not like slaves. We need not fear. I'll remind you again of the, uh, I probably have reminded you of this a few times, Anna and the King, the revision of the King and I that came out a few years ago with, uh, um, what's her name, Jodie Foster. Everyone who comes before the king comes bowed down and they basically have to crawl into the presence of the king, except his daughter. In a sense, the court is rightfully turned upside down when his daughter shows up. She doesn't follow the protocol. She just runs in. She just jumps into the lap of her father and lets her request be known. We are because of Christ, like that child. We have been adopted as sons of the living God, and so we have that free access, not the access of the servile slave, but we have the access of the child upon the lap of their father to make their requests be known because of what Jesus has done. And so Paul in Philippians reminds them, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And so as a result of these passages, we, we need to remember that we pray precisely because we believe that God can help. In other words, we believe that God has the power or the ability to do something with our circumstances. We pray precisely because we believe that not only that, but that as our Father, that He wants to help us, He has saved us, why wouldn't He help us? As Paul talks about in, in Romans chapter 8, He who has not spared His own Son, will He not give us everything for godliness? If He has not spared His Son for us, surely He will come and provide for us in the midst of our distress, whatever that might be. And for Mary and Martha, it was the illness of their brother. And so they send word to Jesus precisely in sense laying out their hearts. It's very brief. It's not a very long, you know, they're not, it's not laborious, so to speak. But in, when we come to Him in prayer, when we draw near in prayer, we can be laborious. Okay, we don't have to worry about giving a short message to somebody so that they can remember it and carry it for a, a day's journey to bring it to the king. We're directly in the presence of our Father who is the king, and we can lay it all out. We can lay out our fears. We can lay out our troubles. We don't have to worry about protocol. As Edward says, the voice of his children is sweet to the Father in prayer. He loves to hear his children say, I'm in trouble. I need you. Here is what my trouble is. And this is what's troubling me about my trouble. 
And so when Eli was in my lap before his surgery a couple weeks ago, all fearful, I had to bring him to the Father. It did not bother me to see my son anxious about the surgery that was ahead of him. But I loved my son enough to pray with him to our Heavenly Father, who is the one who can do what I cannot do. Because I cannot protect my son from everything, but my Heavenly Father can protect my son for his good and for his glory. And so we lay out all of our fears and worries to him. He invites us to do this. It's not a sign of unbelief to do this. But in fact, it's a sign of faith that he's able to deal with it and wants to deal with it. That's why John Calvin says that our principal object ought to be to pour into the bosom of God all our cares and everything that distresses us that he may afford deliverance. There's no item, there's no affliction too big or too small for us to lay at the feet of the Father. There's none. He invites us to come. John Newton, in fact, in one of his uh, letters to someone who was in the midst of affliction, said, above all, keep close to the throne of grace, and meaning in prayer. If we seem to get no good by attempting to draw near him, we may be sure we shall get none by keeping away from him. Something I sometimes say to my children They're fearful that they may not succeed. And I tell them, the only way to succeed is to try. You might not succeed, but you've tried. But if you don't try, you will always fail. So Newton, in in a similar sort of way, is saying, you might be afraid that no help will come through prayer, but I guarantee you this, no help will come if you don't pray. Draw near. Seek his face. Lay it all out to him. Because as our Father and as Christ our brother, they love to hear us expressing our need and our trust in him. So when trouble approaches, we do best to approach the throne of grace in prayer. Secondly, God works for his glory in times of trouble. You see, Jesus offers a little bit of hope to the disciples who are around him. This illness does not lead to death. What illness? Remember, he wasn't told what it was. Okay, so here it is, Jesus having supernatural knowledge of events that he is not a party to geographically. Okay? He knows the present and he knows the future. And he knows that this will not be fatal to Lazarus. Sometimes when illness or accidents or afflictions arise, we begin to question why. I keep going back to that picture of Nancy Kerrigan. It's engraved in my brain. After she was hit by the bat and she's laying on the floor and and curled up a little bit, screaming, why? Why? Sounds like my children sometimes. Um, sometimes it sounds like me, okay? 
why? We're tempted to go into the whys of why this, you know, of, of this event, this affliction. Like the widow that Elijah was dealing with. What have I done that you have brought this to me? She accuses Elijah in the midst of her pain and her grief, her sorrow. We're so prone to do this, to blame God for these things. In a sense, that's what she was doing. You gave me this child and now you have taken him away. Why have you done such a thing to me? What sins have I committed that you would bring me this pain? We also have questions about how long will this last? We have questions that pop up. How bad will it be? That's why most men don't go to the doctor. (laughs) We don't want to deal with how long it might be, and how bad it might get. And so we'd rather just stay away and pretend we weren't sick. Okay? Got, ladies, that's how men think, generally speaking. All right? There's your little uh, gift for the day. Um, but not only that, but when others suffer, what we tend to do is to judge them when they suffer, thinking that it's their fault. We, we have this notion that there has to be a scapegoat. There has to be someone who's to blame for everything. And, and lawyers make lots of money off of this thing that happens. Okay? This illness that Lazarus experiences, uh, although it's not like the man born blind in the sense of duration, it is like the man born blind in, t- in sense of its purpose. Because Jesus says, it is for the glory of God. And that's exactly what he said in John 9 about the man born blind when they asked, who sinned? And Jesus said, nobody's. This was for the glory of God. We see God works all things for his glory, including this illness. And so we have to recognize that this illness is not accidental. It didn't just happen It wasn't an unlucky roll of the dice, so to speak. It's not by chance that this illness has come upon Lazarus. It is the will of God. We are not to think that that this is punishment to Lazarus, that he's done some sort of sin he's committed, and now here God is getting his vengeance upon him in the midst of this illness. That's not how we're to think of this particular illness. There's no direct correlation between these things that are taking place. It was specifically given to Lazarus for the glory of God. And in particular, that glory of God is so that the Son of God might be glorified. In the early church, as they were seeking to understand who Jesus was, okay, they're, they're kind of trying to sort out the realities of the Trinity. Okay, that was not something that the church kind of solved in five minutes. I mean, we all struggle with the reality of the Trinity and exactly what in the world that all means. And how is Jesus God and man? These, these are difficult questions. We have the benefit of all of their struggles as we think about this. So we have a good step in advance of them. 
One of the concerns that some people raised was the idea that Jesus would somehow steal the glory of the Father. What this passage is teaching is that the Father is glorified when the Father, when the Son gets glory. He sets up this, this set of circumstances precisely so His Son will receive glory and therefore He will receive glory. Sort of like, that's my boy. He's doing great things because he reflects me and the great things I do. He is a great son. That's what's going on here. So that the son will receive glory. The father delights when the son gets glory because it reveals who the son is when he works, we realize he's no mere man, but he is God in the flesh who has come to bring salvation. And so these works that Jesus does, these signs that John records for us, reveal the greatness of who Jesus is. They give him glory. Okay? It's the Father again who puts the Son in situations where He can get this glory. The Father is the one who has ordained these circumstances to pass. And so all who love the Son are glad to see the Son receive glory. To see the Son revealed as how great He is. Okay. Recital season is coming. And many a parent will sit and watch while their children perform, showing what they've learned over the course of the past year in studies. And so children are often feel, uh, filled with anxiety. Uh, those of us who are healthy parents, not pathological parents, are delighted regardless of how our children do because we see there's been progress. Okay, We're not like, well, you know, you missed that one. We're not picking out every little detail of what they might have done wrong. We're glad in a sense, for what they do, how they have made progress. We rejoice in that. We delight in that. That's what the Father does. Rejoices and delights in the goodness and glory and perfection, unlike our children, of His Son. Okay? So our afflictions are not accidental, they're not out of God's control, but they are opportunities for Him to display His glory in the way that He deems fit. Our third thing this morning, here's where the, the rubber hits the hard road. Trust that His plan is better than your plan. Okay? There's a lot here. We're not going to get to every little detail of the next uh, 12 verses. But we see that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. What's interesting to note is that Mary is not named by name. She's just now her sister. <laughs> kind of odd. Not sure why. But what is important for me anyway is that the word for love here is not phileo like it was earlier, but now it is Agapeo. In a sense, it's up the ante. He didn't love 
But no, no, he didn't love just Lazarus. He loves all three of them. And so he's, he's not just concerned that Lazarus is ill. He's also concerned as how that impacts Mary and Martha. Because Lazarus does not exist in a vacuum. He loves all three of them. And we might think that based on that love, that Jesus would race across to Jordan River and then to Bethany. Right? He loved them, right? He doesn't. Jesus doesn't do what we sometimes want him to do or expect him to do. Once again, he's showing, in a sense, he is not beholden to any man. And we've seen that repeatedly in this gospel. He doesn't turn the water into wine simply because his mother asked him to. He doesn't go to Jerusalem when his brothers tell him to go to Jerusalem. He's on a different agenda than ours. He's on the Father's agenda. And when when the Father tells him it's time to go, that's when he will go, not before, not after. So he loves them, but he doesn't go. And it doesn't make sense. So often we are like teenagers thinking that our circumstances imposed upon us by those cruel parents that we have are an indication of whether they love us or not. And so when when teenagers don't get their way, what is the typical common cry? Yes, teenagers, you can chip in if you want. What do you say? They're afraid to say it. You don't love me. That's what we do with God. Our circumstances don't go the way we think they do. That's what we are tempted to cry out of our sinful hearts. You don't love me because if you did love me, you'd give me everything I wanted. We're acting like children. We never get too old for that, unfortunately. Okay? We're all tempted to do that. We don't grow out of that one. Okay? Often God's answer to our problems confound us. They seem contrary to our good, at least as how we see it. And that's why we need hymns like, Whate'er my God ordains is right. That is why we need hymns like, God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. Because He doesn't do them the way I would do them. Or the way you would would do them. And thinking about all of this, A.W. Pink notes, let us learn from this that when God makes us wait, it is the sign that He purposes to bless, but in His own way, usually a way so different from what we desire and expect. And so we need to remember, brothers and sisters, that God's glory is not opposed to our good, but that God works to bring about the best possible good. And that usually means, as we discussed a little bit in Sunday school this morning, humbling you 
so that you love and trust Him. And that often means refusing to alleviate your suffering until it does its work in your soul. And we're not a good judge of when it's done doing its work in our soul. But He is wise and He is good. And we have to cling to that as we go through affliction. We need to, when we pray, we need to remember those words that we prayed earlier from Matthew Thy will be done, not my will be done. As Jonathan Edwards notes in his sermon on uh, the God is a the, the God answering prayer, uh, a prayer answering God. Sorry. Fathers don't need their children's wisdom. They need to know what bothers their children. But their children don't have the solution. <laughs> he does. And so bring your problems to him. But remember, he's wiser than you. His solution is much better than yours. He is not opposed to you, but instead seeks to strengthen you. 2 Corinthians 16, For the eyes of the Lord run... Isn't that funny? The eyes of the Lord running. Okay? Not, you know, with tears or whatever. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth to give strong support. Eyes giving strong support. Nonetheless, God is giving strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward Him. And so those who belong to Him, those who love Him, He supports and strengthens them when they need it. So, Jesus, back to the situation. The disciples really don't know what's going on. They just know what Jesus is telling them, so to speak. Jesus is waiting. Lazarus most likely has died shortly after the messenger has left Bethany. Okay, But now, two days later, Jesus says, it's time to go. And when Jesus says this, the disciples are not too enthusiastic about this. Their eyes have shifted off of their friend Lazarus. And they've begun to say, you know, Jesus, the last time we were over there, you know, Bethany's only two miles from Jerusalem. They were trying to kill you. This might not be a good move. Okay? They're concerned about this. They're worried about this. But Jesus says it's time to go. He he tells them that Lazarus has fallen asleep. Now, when Jesus says this, it was not common to speak of death as falling asleep in the Scriptures anyway. There's one instance we can find in the Old Testament, Daniel 12. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to eternal life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So there in Daniel, death is talking, talked about as sleep because there's the recognition that there's going to be a resurrection. Okay? That death is not final. 
That's one of the few places in the Old Testament that speaks that way. And so it was not normal, so to speak, for the disciples to hear people talk that way and, and to understand sleep as death, but it sure took on, apparently, because we see this language used in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 on three different occasions. We see it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, as well as 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not, uh, sorry, who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from God, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And so Paul really picked up on that language of death. It's more similar to sleep. The disciples, of course, missed it. They think that he is convalescing. It is the sleep of one who is exhausted from trying to heal, and now he's uh, getting rest. Okay, Sort of like a medically induced coma or something. Why did Jesus delay? That is a really interesting question. It's one day to where Jesus was, and it's one day back, so that's two days. It says that Jesus waited two more days, so Jesus is going to get there the fourth day after Lazarus has passed away. Sproul is the only one that I read anyway that brings up this idea, so I'm, I'm hoping it's true. <laughs> and it's an odd thing, though. Rabbinical, rabbinical tradition was that at death, the spirit didn't leave for three days. Now, that just sounds really weird to me. Anyone, that sounds really weird to anyone else. Okay? Uh, three days. So the idea, Sproul mentions, is that Jesus delays so that everyone knows that Lazarus is really dead. That there's no hope of resuscitation because the spirit would be gone. I, I, it's the only place I've read it. I don't know. But he's dead. And by the fourth day, he's really dead, even if we don't believe that. Okay? It's, it's not he's been dead for five minutes, uh, you know, something like that. Um, in fact, I just heard about someone who it was ten minutes without oxygen, and, but they're alive, and they're showing motion, you know, indications that they were able to, their brain function is still there, they're able to respond and things like that. So, anyway. He tells them, he speaks plainly because they missed it. Lazarus has died. He's dead. But they've forgotten what he said. I'm going to wake him up. They've forgotten the purpose of this trip because then... Apparently, Peter was not there, or Peter was previously or otherwise occupied in some way, shape, or form, because the usual role of Peter of saying something that doesn't make much sense is done by Thomas, okay? Thomas jumps right in there, and Thomas, this is really the only gospel where we see a whole lot of Thomas, um, but he steps right up and says, let's go with you to die, 
He's completely missed what Jesus has said. We're going to wake up Lazarus. Dudes. I'm going to wake him from the dead. They've missed it. They're all ready to go. Okay? What is all of this about? What is the glory that is going to be given in all of this? Jesus says, words that sort of astound us, Lazarus has died, and I'm glad for your sake. Okay? Let's put that there. He's not, he's not glad simply that Lazarus is dead, but he's glad for their sake so that you might believe. Let's not think for a second that they didn't already have saving faith. They are his disciples. Um, they believed as much as has been revealed to them thus far. Okay, But their faith needs to grow. Which brings me back to Prince Caspian. Near the end of the book, they have just survived an ambush. Things are not going well. La- uh, Aslan has not shown up yet. And Lucy, the youngest, wakes up early. Okay? And she sort of stumbles into the woods. And she sees a lion. And without thinking as to whether or not this would be a dangerous lion or the one she's been waiting for, she runs to the lion. And she jumps into his mane. And she gives a big squeeze. And she's so delighted. And the lion welcomes her. Welcome, child. As she says, at last. She's delighted because at last, Aslan has shown up. At last, all is going to be right in the world. At last. He welcomes her. But then she makes this curious comment. Aslan, you're bigger. That is because you are older, little one. Not because you are. I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. This is touching on what we talked about very briefly. Oh my goodness. Uh, last week on that um, growing in knowledge and understanding of Christ. Okay? He gets bigger. As our knowledge and understanding of Him increases, we see Him as bigger than we did yesterday. Greater, more powerful, more gracious, more forgiving, more merciful, more whatever it is. Our understanding increases and therefore He grows in our eyes in His glory. And so what Jesus wants is for Him to grow in the eyes of His disciples. They will believe and trust in Him more than they already do because they will see Him as greater and able to do greater things than they currently think He can do. That's what's going on here. And so God brings us often through difficult times so that Jesus grows in our eyes, in our experience so that we will begin to trust Him for even bigger things in our lives. What an amazing work He does. 
And so God's seemingly strange plan for you is so that you would know and understand how great He is. So Jesus doesn't show up when we want Him to show up. He often seems to be inconveniently late. And things don't turn out like the way we hoped they would. Illnesses, accidents, and affliction ravage our lives at times. But let us not think that He doesn't love us. Let us not think that He's unable to help us. Instead, let us pour our hearts out to Him. Let us continue to trust in Him to glorify Himself in the best possible way in the midst of our circumstances. This pain path will be the best way for us to grow in our faith, to see Him as bigger, greater, wiser, and even more loving than any answer to our prayers could ever be. Always remember, beloved, that we are safe in His hand even when He seems so far off. Let's pray. Father, thank You that Your your Son's hand is as strong as Yours. And so all who believe, all that you have given to your Son out of love are secure in His hands, though they go through hardship and affliction. Father, when when it comes to our lives, help us to remember the depths of your love, the heights of your wisdom, so that we would not only pour out our hearts to you, but that we would trust you even when we don't understand because there's going to be a lot of stuff we don't understand. But because we have learned about your heart, your character, help us to trust you. And to know that what you do for your glory is ultimately for our good. Even if it's not what we want. Remember that we are but dust. Remember that we are smoldering wicks and bruised reeds and deal mercifully with us. In Jesus' name, amen.